We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are doing our book review of Rodney Stark's How the West Won. And so we did the introduction last time, and we're going to jump into chapter one. So before we get started, how are you, Bob? And is there anything you want to talk about before we get going? It's winter time here, Hampton. Just so you know, cold and snowy every day. Yeah, I don't, I don't miss that. I prefer playing golf in short sleeves in December. Like you did yesterday? Yes. <laughs> That's so such a contrast, you know. I'm barely staying on the road. Yeah, people were wondering what I was gonna do when I moved from Colorado back to Texas. How when I couldn't go fly fishing every day. You, know, uh, you adjusted. I adjusted, I replaced it with golf. <laughs> I get you. So <clears throat> let's dive in this way because last time, you know, I wanted to put those the material we were reading on the biblical canvas. So we read Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then the interpretation by Daniel in the book of Daniel chapter two. So, well, and it's applicable because the country, the the empires are going to, we're going to talk about today are a couple of them are in that vision. That's exactly right. And then uh, I wanted to read, I just, I guess, the more I thought about it, wanted to keep reading through uh, the book of Daniel because, you know, interspersed, you have other dreams, you have, uh, you know, the conflict between the empires because that part of the point of that chapter two is God's kingdom, you know, triumphs in the end. And, you know, in the meantime, how do believers live under Gentile world domination. And so Daniel chapter three is an example of that, right? That's the fiery furnace. So you live by faith, right? So I want to read that. Okay. So here's Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made. So let's pause there. I I don't like to interrupt God and his words, But just so our listeners have this image in their mind, what he's referring to is that dream. So after he has that dream, he then goes and builds that image, right? It said in the image, Nebuchadnezzar was, (coughs) 
the head of gold, but the succeeding kingdoms, you know, were of lesser metals like silver, bronze, iron, as you work your way down the statue. But when Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, he makes the whole thing gold. <laughs> right. So, right. So he's thinking it's all his. But anyway, <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar had a golden statue made. It was 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. He erected it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent out a summons to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other authorities of the province to attend the dedication of the statue that he had erected. So the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial authorities assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. They were standing in front of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Then the herald made a loud proclamation to you, O peoples, nations, and language groups. The following command is given. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected. Whoever does not bow down and pay homage will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when they all heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and language groups began bowing down and paying homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Now at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought malicious accusations against the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued an edict, O king, that everyone must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue. When they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music. And whoever does not bow down and pay homage must be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. But there are Jewish men whom you appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men have not shown proper respect to you, O king. They don't serve your gods, and they don't pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of rage, demanded that they bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him. So they brought them before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods and that you don't pay homage to the golden statue that I erected. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, all kinds of music, you must bow down and pay homage to this statue that I had made. If you don't pay homage to it, you'll immediately be thrown into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Now, who is that God can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to give you a reply concerning this. If your God, if our God, whom we are serving, exists, he's able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. But if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, 
that we don't serve your gods and that we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. His disposition changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was normally heated. He ordered strong soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So those men were tied up while still wearing their cloaks, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, and were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. But since the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so excessively hot, the men who escorted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were killed by the leaping flames. But those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the furnace of blazing fire while still securely bound. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was startled and quickly got up. He said to his ministers, Wasn't it three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied to the king, For sure, O king. He answered, But I see four men untied and walking around in the midst of the fire. No harm has come to them. The appearance of the fourth is like that of a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the fire. Once the satraps, prefects, governors, and ministers of the king had gathered around, they saw that those men were physically unharmed by the fire. The hair of their heads was not singed, nor even their trousers damaged. Not even the smell of fire was to be found on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent forth his angel and has rescued his servants who trusted in him, ignoring the edict of the king and giving up their bodies rather than serve or pay homage to any god other than their god. I hereby decree that any people, nation, or language group that blasphemes the god of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego will be dismembered and his home reduced to rubble. For there exists no other god who can deliver in this way. Then Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So that's how, that's I know that's how to live underneath Gentile domination. You live by faith. God delivers. Right. So take us through our book, Hampton. Okay, well, we'll start with chapter one. And uh, it's called Stagnant Empires and the Greek Miracle. Basically, he tells us in this chapter that for the whole history of the world, the main form of government has been tyrannical empires where a few elite ran the country and most people lived lives of misery. And that would be true of you know, Egypt, China, Persia, India. And um, in the midst of all of that, the Greeks kind of sprung up with their hundreds of city-states where 
they ended up with local government. And so the um, there was a lot more freedom because there wasn't some elite uh, tyrant over the whole group. So let me let me can I interrupt you just real yeah. quick? Yeah. So I'm looking at that first page and, you know, in the middle of the second paragraph, um, he mentions the ruling elites. And then later at the end of that second paragraph, this was not because they lacked the potential to achieve a much higher standard of living, but because a predatory ruling elite extracted every ounce of surplus production and then <clears throat> so end quote and so on but i wanted to point out he'll make that same kind of comment four or five more times mm -hmm. in this chapter and it makes me think hampton because i want to get back to what you're saying in a second but our founding fathers were afraid of a couple things as they established how this country would be governed and primarily their fear was um, the sinfulness of man. So if any one branch of government got too much power and couldn't be checked by the others, there would be severe consequences from that. So they balanced the powers. Well, and, and they, um, yeah, they'd come out of a monarchy, so they knew what they knew what that was like, what abuse was like. Yeah. yeah. And then I think they also feared, you've told me this privately any number of times, uh, immoral and immoral population. They said that their system really wouldn't work for an immoral population. And yet, I think there might have been a third thing they should have been afraid of, though I don't know any way to countenance or to... Uh, to defend against this, but I would imagine, you know, in Ben Franklin's day, they could not have imagined a person with a trillion dollars. That would, I don't think they could even imagine that. Right. And so in our culture today, you've got these hyper, super wealthy individuals and they can simply buy institutions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting to see Stark use that term, the elites. So, right. so anyway, keep going. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, um, he makes a comment in there. He's quoting from a Wikipedia article. He says, the Wikipedia article on the Maurya uh, Empire, which ruled most of India from 321 to 185 B.C., uh, praises it for generating prosperity while innocently noting a report from the time that the Indians all live frugally and their food is principally a rice pottage. Because, <laughs> as though this were merely a matter of preference. You know, right. They, they yeah. wanted to, you know, live on oatmeal or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so right. He said instead of praising those empires, we should be recognizing how oppressive they were. Right. Talks about the high taxes, the forced labor, how many people died to build things like pyramids, the Great Wall of China, and those kinds of things. He right. said it's the elites 
if the elite seizes all production above the minimum needed for survival, people have no motivation to produce more. Right. In despotic states where rulers concentrate on exacting the maximum amount from those they control, subjects become notably avaricious. Did I say that right? Yeah. They consume, hoard, and hide the fruits of their labor, and they fail to produce nearly as much as they might. Even when some people do manage to be productive, chances are that their efforts will merely enrich their rulers. The result is a standard of living far below the society's potential productive capacities. The average free citizen did not live much better than did the huge numbers held in slavery by the ancient empires. And he basically yep. calls these command economies where the yep. state commands and coerces the markets and the labor to, you know, get wealth for itself. Okay. So said command economies begin with the earliest empires and have lasted in many parts of the modern world. They still attract ardent advocates. So who would be some ardent advocates of the command economy? Well, China'd be one. Yeah. Socialism. Right. Yeah. Communism. That's right. And that's put the, I guess the World Economic Forum is trying to uh, implement too. Yeah. And that, that whole universal income and their statements about that, you know, you will own nothing and be completely satisfied. Man, what a sales job that is. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what Stark's talking about. Yeah. And um, he points out that uh, in China, for example, he gives a good example later when I will we'll deal with. But he said the problem in China and all of Asia was that property was insecure. Mm-hmm. Why bother inventing something if the government can can and will just take it away? Mm hmm. And that's actually going on in America now. I've got a good friend that invented the bunch of balloons. And his his patent was, I guess, taken. Uh, his product was copied by another toy maker or something. And they yeah. started selling them in Walmart. And they sued them and won. And they just changed the color and did it again. And. They sued them and I guess one and they just changed the color again and calling it a new product. I guess his patent was finally just taken away. They said, you didn't really invent it, you know, and there's a whole bunch of that going on with different people. So yeah, it makes you go, why, why bother inventing anything? Yep. So the, this, this big section on Greece in here, um, their period of greatness from 600 to 338 BC was when they were all independent city states and people could keep what they made and and then when Philip of Macedon conquered the Greeks then um the, the they stopped thriving as much I guess yeah so they talked about their he talks about their superior warfare and part of that was the citizen soldiers are defending their homes and they have, they're much more motivated than the soldier slaves of the Persians. That's where your example of Leonidas we talked about last time. <laughs> oh yeah. It, <laughs> that's right. That's such a good scene in that movie. Yeah. 
And so democracy we, is, comes from Greek, uh, demos, people, and kratos, uh, power. So it's power to the people. Well, there you go. So uh, here's another point I'd like to make, you know, as we make our way through these early chapters. It's evident when you read the uh, history of these empires and cultures, you know, that have led up to today, the ones that progress and by progress, I mean, you know, provide a higher standard of living for the average citizen. The ones that do that do it because they govern more closely to correct ideas. For instance, since mankind is the image of God and God himself is free, he's not bound to anything. Mankind should be as free as possible. And since God owns everything, you know, by virtue of the fact that he created it all, man, the, the systems that honor ownership, individual ownership, thrive. Right. So the, the principle is if you govern in accordance with a biblical worldview, particularly as it pertains to what a human being is, your culture thrives. Right, right. Yeah, so someone would probably or, or might argue, well, the Greeks did it without Jesus, you know, so there's nothing unique about Christianity. Well, but, uh, but the the what you're saying is that when they stumble upon yes, truth, it's God's truth. You know, it's God's truth. And when the Greeks are, you know, living in con consistently with that truth, yes. whether they got it from the Bible or not, yes, then they're going to thrive. And lots of people today are like that, Hampton. This, you know, I'm a, I don't know how to say this perfectly, so I'll just blurt it out. I'm often much more at home with unbelievers than I am with believers. And that that might be a comment on me more than on more than on my company. But many unbelievers will recognize Christian truths. Right? right. Don't don't murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Well, they they know that. Right. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting. He said the size of an average house was six times larger in the fifth century than it was in the eighth century. <laughs> you know, you, you wonder how do you measure, you know, <laughs> prosperity? I never thought of looking at the size of houses. <laughs> No, but that's that's a good one. Yeah, you know it, another it, one, it, another one like that. Sorry, this is a rabbit trail. So we're reversing we're reversing roles, Hampton. I'm gonna rabbit okay. trail you. Okay. So, um, you know another, just like that, another example of what would you look at to measure uh, certain things in a culture? Uh, so measuring success of a culture, another way could be in, in today's times number of patents. Right. Which countries patent the most things mm -hmm. every every United States? You could add up the rest of the world wouldn't equal the United States. Well, right. well, why is that? <laughs> you know, that's an inter another interesting yeah. well, that's, uh, 
measuring that could stick. be what we were just talking about if the patent if you can't protect your private property they don't right. honor that right and they people here have the freedom to let their mind develop stuff and then the freedom generally speaking right to benefit from an invention that their mind has come up with that that's why it thrives here well i, I just thought of something too with the size of the house being an indication of economic progress you know if you live in california now you're happy with a one-bedroom tiny yeah. house well, that's, all you can, that's all you can afford yeah they'll tax you tax you to death if you have a bigger one yeah yeah he went into some detail about the Greeks doing a 24-letter alphabet instead of having lots of ideographic or ideographic characters. And so writing took off. Mm -hmm. And uh, But the Jews had been writing in Hebrew long before that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to, you know, think about what was going on at the same time over in, in Israel. Well, let me let me bounce off that because often it's portrayed that uh, you know Moses is leading a bunch of bumpkins, right? Mm -hmm. They've been they've been slaves for hundreds of years now. How how is uh, you know Moses bringing a bunch of slaves that don't know anything and certainly illiterate out of Egypt, right. and yet and yet as you read Exodus and um <clears throat> moses will say for instance well further in leviticus and so on write these laws like on your tassels on your such well how could they write them if they were illiterate mm -hmm. so they weren't illiterate that's literacy's been going on a long long time i'd say since very close to the beginning but right. anyway just something to think about so he talks about technological progress. They invented, the Greeks invented the water wheel, the hydraulic screws, so, which was a water pump. Uh, they used those for irrigation. They invented winches, cranes, wheelbarrows, a water clock, astrolabe, maps, longitude and latitude, calipers, catapults. And new techniques for casting bronze, new mining methods. So there was just a, a ton of um, technological progress, which you'll contrast in the next chapter to Rome, which had none. Other than you know, you know, one way to express how, just how fascinating intellectually those guys were to me has always been, you know, you go through your college education, typically at some point you take calculus, right. whether it's in high school or college, and that's a pretty advanced subject. Well, imagine the guy who thought that up. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, these guys were geniuses. Man, Mankind's always been that way. Right. Right. I want to read this one section here. It's about China. Late in the 10th century, an iron industry began to develop in parts of northern China. By 1018, the smelters were producing an estimated 35,000 tons a year, an incredible, incredible achievement for the time. 
And 60 years later, they may have been producing more than 100,000 tons. This was not a government operation. Private individuals had seized the opportunity presented by a strong demand for iron and the supplies of easily mined ore and coal. With the smelters and foundries located along a network of canals and navigable rivers, the iron could be easily brought to distant markets. Soon these new Chinese iron industrialists were reaping huge profits and reinvesting heavily in the expansion of their smelters and foundries. The availability of large supplies of iron led to the introduction of iron agricultural tools, which in turn began to increase food production. In short, China began to enter an industrial revolution. But then it all stopped as suddenly as it had begun. By the end of the 11th century, only tiny amounts of iron were produced, and soon after that, the smelters and foundries were abandoned ruins. What had happened? Eventually, the mandarins at the imperial court had noticed that some commoners were getting rich by manufacturing and were hiring peasant laborers at high wages. They deemed such activities to be threats to Confucian values and social trans tranquility. Commoners must know their place. Only the elite should be wealthy. So they declared a state monopoly on iron and seized everything. And that was that. As the 19th century historian Winwood Reed summed up, the reason for China's many centuries of economic and social stagnation is plain. Property is insecure. So I had mentioned that earlier. I forgot to read the. No, it's, it's such a good example. And you see our word in there again, don't you? Only the elite mm -hmm. should be wealthy. So that World Economic Forum, their statement, uh, you know, by 2040, you will own nothing. Well, who is going to own it? They are. Right. <laughs> right. It's not like nothing will be owned. It's you will own nothing. So yeah, and you you'll hear people make claims that um, well, the West didn't invent this or that gunpowder mm -hmm. example, um, and a lot of things were invented long ago in China, but then sure. they were never taken advantage of. Correct. And that's a good example there. Yeah, very very good. Very good. Um, <clears throat> the. Um, he says kind of it. I'm going to sum up this whole chapter. He talks about ancient morality. He said there was a darker side that eventually played a substantial role in the downfall of Greek civilization. For all the brilliance of the Greek philosophers, they did not rise above the moral limitations of the ancient world. The economies of all the Greek city states rested on extensive slavery, and many, including Athens, slaves probably outnumbered the free citizens. And the presence of such an overwhelming number of slaves with few limits on their mistreatment resulted in an increasingly idle citizenry and coarsened Greek sensibilities. No Greek philosopher was sufficiently enlightened to have condemned slavery that awaited the rise of Christianity. The first known instance of the general abolition of slavery anywhere in the world lay a millennium in the future in medieval Europe. You know, there's, that's right. So let's not uh, forget that point. <clears throat> I wanted to make another point, though, because there's a section in there about warfare, 
Like, why did the Greeks dominate in warfare? For instance, uh, you know, Alexander the Great, probably unsurpassed, don't you think, in mm -hmm. general? generalship right in in history i mean that that's his name it reminds me of a fantastic far side cartoon you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we haven't done I, one of those in a long time okay well let's do one today because it's so funny this is in my top five i mean he for me that guy's got like a he should have like a top thousand yeah this has got to be in the top five when here comes this guy coming home from you know hard day's work he's all beat down and the, the missus is in the doorway of the hut and her hands are on her hip as she berates her husband coming home. And she says, and another thing, I'm tired of people calling you Alexander the pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And so he's the great. Right. So, you know, basically invincible. And yet he fought typically with about. 40,000 guys that that was his max army and that that's a decent sized army back mm -hmm. then but when you're going up against the Persians they're gonna outnumber you easy five to one probably right. probably much more than that but it, at least five to one well how how was Alexander constantly winning if he was always outnumbered against the Persians and Stark made such a good point that numbers, especially in hand-to-hand -hand fighting like that, are critical. So how's he winning? Well, Stark says he had the phalanx, right? He had the arrangement that mm -hmm. whenever those armies came, like touched, whenever they came together, the Greeks actually outnumbered the Persians at that fingertip. Right. right. Because of the way they were organized. And so they're fighting with spears, you know, in a in a protective formation. No other guys have swords and axes and the Greeks are just mowing them down all, all over the place. So it, so it was a really interesting couple of pages on the Greek military. It was cool. And that <clears throat> I'm also reminded of another far side. This probably also makes the top five because you, <laughs> when, when you were mentioning, you know, some of the inventions of the West and you mentioned the wheelbarrow, <laughs> he's Gary Larson has a great, you know, one, one panel cartoon on the wheelbarrow. And it's a guy There's two guys and one guy is standing and holding the other guy by his ankles. And, you know, the guy's angled face down and his his face is in the dirt and he's just plowing a big divot in the dirt. And the caption says, Barrow, precursor to the game, wheelbarrow. <laughs> 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 oh, man. That's crazy. <laughs> okay, go ahead. What else? Anything else in that chapter you wanted to talk about? Uh, just for those who are, um, you know, fascinated by Greek culture, which is a good thing to be fascinated by. I mean, it is, boy, you could spend your life studying that. There's good material in that chapter. So it's it doesn't really further our point now to go over it in detail, but it's it's worth reading. Right. Um, well, I'm going to move on to the next chapter then. It's okay. Chapter two is called the Jerusalem's Rational God. Okay. And 
there are a lot of similarities between Greek philosophy and Christianity, but that is like we talked about earlier, because men are able to discover truth apart from God. Sure. Um, God gave them rational minds. And when it's working properly, they can discover that two plus two equals four when it's not. Mm-hmm. And two plus two equals whatever you want it to be. Um, oh, yeah. The modern math. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Well, we know that two plus two equals four is, was it uh, white supremacy? Oh, that was on that list of things that taken off that website, right? Yeah. yeah. And so he says the, thus the primary effect of Greek philosophy on Christianity had far less to do with doctrines per se than with the commitment of even the earliest Christian theologians to reason and logic. And so um, Tertullian, who lived about 160 to 225, said, reason is a thing of God inasmuch as there is nothing which God, the maker of all, has not provided, disposed, ordained by reason, nothing which he has not willed should be handled and understood by reason. This was echoed in the recognitions which tradition attributed to Clement of Rome. Do not think that we say that these things are only to be received by faith, but also that they are to be asserted by reason. For indeed, it is not safe to commit these things to bare faith without reason, since assuredly truth cannot be without reason. And hence the immensely influential St. Augustine merely expressed the prevailing wisdom when he held that reason was indispensable to faith. So um, anyway, he said that reason and logic are instrumental in developing our systematic theology. Sure. Sure. And think about, you know, some of the great scientists you know, down through the ages, doesn't the world, uh, the creation, Mm -hmm. doesn't the creation scream design? And, And if the creation screams design, it implies a designer. And even implying that, you can see how reason is involved. You can't design stuff unreasonably that works and the the creation clearly works so it's got to be a rational design and then think of how many times jesus will say in the scriptures you know something to the effect well how does it appear to you Mm -hmm. right and asking you to explain well why is he doing that if 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 he can't presuppose that you can and should do that. Yeah. So, so anyway. Um, I That idea of reasonable faith instead of blind faith. I mean, that goes all the way back to those guys that I was just reading. Well, and didn't we have Hampton almost a perfect example to start out the podcast? Wasn't the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reasonable? They said our God can do that. He's God. He can do any. So yeah, he could protect us from the fiery furnace, but if he chooses not to, we're still not going to worship. You know, that's reason. 
right? Right. We're, we're not trying to coerce God into saving us. He may choose not to, but he certainly can if he wants to. And either way, we're not worshiping you. Right. <laughs> so. <clears throat> he has a whole section in here about progress. Mm-hmm. I know. I Don't you hesitate to say that word? Yes. Progressive. Right. But he says progress is a Western concept. That yeah. where history is moving towards a a goal. Yeah. Pro- yeah. And constantly yeah. improving. And I can't find it, but he, he contrasted it with like Islam and their view of Allah does whatever he wants. And so there's like a lack of motivation for progress. Um, Time is just going in circles or something. I can't remember how he was putting that. Do you remember that? Uh, Yeah, I I remember that concept. I couldn't turn to it right now. Oh, here it is. He goes, even more important, Islam holds that the universe is inherently irrational, that there is no cause and effect. Because everything happens as the direct result of Allah's will at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Anything is possible. Attempts at science then are not only foolish, but also blasphemous in that they imply limits to Allah's power and authority. Therefore, Muslim scholars study law. What does Allah require? Not science. But what of the golden era of Muslim science and learning that flourished while Europe languished in the Dark Ages, which is chapter four? Chapter four makes it clear that the Dark Ages are a myth. The golden era of Islamic science and learning is too. Some Muslim-occupied societies gave the appearance of sophistication only because of the culture sustained by their subject peoples, Jews and various brands of Christianity. So... Yeah. No, those are very, that's a very important thought. That's right. So, you know, another. There were were jokes about having to bomb the Afghan people into the Stone Age or something like that. That's terrible. Because because they did not progress directly as a result of these religious beliefs. Well, that's right. Um, we already talked about China. Any type of progress was nipped in the bud so that the elite were not threatened. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, at the bottom of the next, at least what I call a page, you know, on my Kindle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. The idea of progress is profoundly Christian. That's an interesting simple sentence because because we see you see progress in the scriptures the dominant progress is from the garden of eden to the new jerusalem in revelation and you see progress all the way nitty-gritty sometimes backwards leading but inexorably moving forward to the new jerusalem that's a hugely christian concept Right. Of, of progress. And it and it's interesting how many times what the progressives claim that they desire. And I say claim because 
<clears throat> if you watch them long enough, you can read between the lines. What they say they want is often just camouflage for what they really want. But what they really want is control and domination, right? But if when they claim, for instance, <clears throat> oh, we want universal health care, well, is could that be translated into a Christian concept? Well, sure. When Jesus returns, wipe away every tear. You can eat from the tree of life. The leaves are for healing, right? There will be universal health care, but right. it'll be when Jesus is here. Right? So all, all the things they want are going to, well, all the things they say they want are going to happen, but not they're not going to come about through the means the liberals use. And besides, it's not really their goal. Just so pe people know, I know how, how this can just sound like I'm just a, a bitter guy. They don't care about your health plan. They're, they're not sitting there thinking, you know, Bob and Hampton really need better health care. That is not what they're thinking about. They're thinking, how can we control them? And if we can control their health, isn't that just about everything? No, that's, right? that's, that's the old Geritol commercial from our youth. <laughs> you've got your health. You've got just about everything. And that's what they want, right? Because once they control your health plan, what are they going to start doing? They're going to tell you what car to drive because they're not going to want you in an unhealthy car. They're going to tell you what groceries you can buy because they don't want you to buy unhealthy. You see what I'm saying? They will yeah. control everything through health care. Well, they're having a problem right now in the, the Netherlands. The government's trying to take away the farms because they are producing too much nitrogen. It's all climate right. change stuff. Right. It, it's, it's, they'll relate it. Exactly. It's a ruse mm -hmm. for a takeover. It's They don't really care about your health care. So anyway, let's move on. Okay. Well, that's all I had from that chapter. Okay. So. I'm, tr I'm trusting you. Okay. Huh? <laughs> okay. So, well, let's relate this back you know, before we close this out. So the Greeks were what um, segment of Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Um, I don't know. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're the, the belly and thighs of bronze. Okay. Right. Right. So here's Nebuchadnezzar on top, and he's gold. Mm -hmm. And then as you move down, right, the shoulders and arms and chest is silver, and that's Persia. And then come the Greeks, the um, belly and thighs of bronze, and then the legs of iron. That's mm -hmm. Rome. So <clears throat> that's where we are on the statue. And Stark's point is the Greeks. If you look at progress, you know, defined as ease of living, right? Standard of living. Yes. That that the the Greeks advanced that ball down the field more than any other culture in history. Right. Right. And within that context, then here comes Christianity, right? Within the and he'll explain in our next next chapter how basically the Romans didn't advance the ball at all. But they at least didn't move backwards, right? So right. 
and Christianity came, right? Judaism had been there, but Christianity comes under that classical kind of empire, the Greeks and Romans. So for instance, our New Testament was written in what language? Greek. Greek, because of Alexander, right? It conquered the world. And so, you know, their influence continued down to the time, even of the Roman Empire, a lot of people, you know, the the language on the street was Greek. Mm-hmm. And so um, <clears throat> the great, you know, progenitors of the faith wanted, like, like, for instance, even the Old Testament, they wanted that copied into Greek. And so that's where, you know, most of our listeners would know this, but that's where you get the term, the Septuagint. Right. That that refers to the Greek I say the Greek, obviously there were a number of different translations, but just speaking in generalities, the Septuagint means the 70, and it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which had become so popular, so so much used, that quite often when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they're really quoting the Septuagint, even though they know Hebrew. They're, right. they're quote, quoting the when, Greek when, version. I don't remember what year was the that was that years? done? Was yeah. the translation? I can't give you that off the top of my head. Yeah. I'll look that up though. But um, but anyway, so I just wanted to relate this stuff back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Yeah, <clears throat> because you see, it's so good to study someone like Stark or the issues we're raising on our podcast against the background of the Bible, because the Bible's the ultimate explanation of all this stuff. And so where where we're trying to go is understand the value of Western culture. When, and when I say West, I personally, I'm referring mostly to the United States, but that, that would include Europe and so on. But why did we supersede, you know, all this stuff that has gone before? Like, for instance, you know, another way to identify the United States is there has never in the history of the world been a middle class like the United States has. The average middle class citizen in the United States is fabulously wealthy compared to the rest of the world. How was that created? And so that's what we're exploring. Right. Very good. Okay, champ. Well, talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.